This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you love underground music and movies, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed shirts, vinyl, CDs, and more. Go to portlanddistro.com. Plug in the discount code MikeHill666 for 15% off at portlanddistro.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the Everything Went Black podcast. This week, John Padgett, author, narrator, editor, and lapsed ventriloquist, joins us. I had the pleasure of watching John work a few months ago at Nightlands Festival. That's the inaugural weird fiction spoken word event curated and brought to you by Cadabra Records. Additionally, John is the editor-in-chief of Grimscribe Press, a publishing company that I follow closely. They publish Vastarian, a literary journal focusing on weird fiction. John and I had a very interesting conversation, so please enjoy. Before we get going, I want to shout out the rest of the horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse. Of course, I'm referring to the Illuminati of media. Starting the week off, we have Brandon Legion bringing you Horror Wolf 666. Jackie Smith brings you Into the Necrosphere. Of course, this is Everything Went Black. I return with Necromaniacs, along with Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid. We co-host and present to you the best reviews of old and new horror movies break the apocalypse rounds out the week and over the weekend carl Hikara delivers soul knocks for all things weird macabre and esoteric i'd also like to invite you to listen to our newest member cheyenne of trivax brings you iblis manifestations if you want to further support the podcast, please join us on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get access to the bonus content. For $5 a month, you get access to the bonus content, plus early access of all the regular stream shows. And if you want to be a sponsor, you can do so for $25 a month. Be sure to follow us on social media. Enjoy. Well, it was uh, it was really nice uh, meeting you briefly at Nightlands Festival. That was a pretty excellent event that I've been looking forward to for yeah, a, a yeah. long time. Yeah, me too. Me too. I I, I had a blast. I mean, obviously. Yeah, I, I I was there for the uh, the Thursday sort of pre-show, um, which you know was the basically the I, I'm going to call it the Legati uh, you know record release party <laughs> for lack of a better term. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the atmosphere of that location was great. You know, it was a nice small crowd, was, you know, Thursday evening. It was, it was overall good, good evening. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fantastic. I, I, I could only imagine uh, an event like that, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. One of the things that's compelling that I want to ask you about, the fact that you are actually a ventriloquist, and how you got into that 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 whole uh you know thing because it's it's a there's a number of of points that come up when i think about that um i know that you're also a you know thomas legati uh fan obviously you know you're one of the go-to narrators for the cadabra records um material that's out there and one of the things that's fascinated me about thomas legati is his uh sort of um update of cosmic pessimism you know we got arthur schopenhauer 
Uh, I got H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft's uh, sort of dim view of the cosmos being this unfeeling emptiness. And then Ligotti in modern days sort of taking that one step further and saying that life is kind of a mechanical process with no will associated with the body. Um, and that brings us to uh, ventriloquism. <laughs> and marionettes <laughs> also play play like a you know very, very big part in some of, uh, you know, there's always reference Ligotti. So what, when did, how did, I know that you're a fan. I know that you're a ventriloquist, you're a publisher, you're, you know, a narrator. How does all this stuff fit together? Because like ventriloquism is such a fascinating sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the really um, the short answer is I, I, I'm not sure how it all fits together. Uh, the long answer is that um, anthropomorphic figures. Um, are frightening and yes. uh, uh you, you know not to everybody but to uh to many um and and what makes them frightening <clears throat> is their uncanny nature so if say you're i mean it's kind of like it's with ventriloquist dummies especially when you look at a ventriloquist dummy and and nobody's handling it, um, it's not talking, um, but it's sitting, say, in a chair by itself. You, your mind automatically tries to make the figure move or expects even the figure to move. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of the same or a similar um, uncanny feeling to being at a wake and seeing a body. Um, it, it's it, it's something that that looks uh, potentially animate and is not, um, which is one of the reasons why I think. Uh, Ligotti, his his work um, has the recurring imagery of, of puppets and dolls and other uh, anthropomorphic figures, and and this really um, is underscored in uh, his um, nonfiction work, the conspiracy against the human race. <clears throat> I mean, he out and out says it. Um, that uh, his his philosophy is uh, the image that that represents it best is that of the puppet, um, and uh, it and the reasons behind that uh, are both obvious and not so obvious. <laughs> I mean, from from the obvious standpoint, um, um, the the puppet or the doll. Uh, or the figure has has no will of their own. They they have no um, uh, they have no uh, real sentience. So if if you take that image a step further and say, well, what if um, what if the dummy sitting on the chair by itself? Um, was a little more like us. Let's say it can't move on its own. It can't do anything on its own. It doesn't have its own voice, but let's say that inside its hollow head, there is some kind of sentience. There's, there's some kind of, wouldn't that be horrible? You know, and obviously it would. It, it, I mean, Ligotti mentions it in one of his stories, uh, Dr. Folk and Mr. Veach, um, uh, imagine Wood waking up. Um, you know, unthinkable. And yet, 
Um, Ligotti uh, takes that uh, a step even further by by saying, you know, we are like dolls, like dummies, like like uh, puppets. Um, uh, you know, we have uh, we we have no real agency. We weren't. Um, we didn't create ourselves. Uh, we we came out of seeming non-existence into this brief sentience, and we're given uh, a very um, a very set uh, stream of of um, programming that we are in order to be a successful organism that we are required to accomplish. Um, and we are hardwired to, uh, to accomplish those goals, to, you know, uh, develop um, into uh, adulthood, uh, to uh, um, procreate, um, to live out our lives, uh, and not think about the end result or the millennia of end results that we've seen. Death is something that that uh, um, death is is in a Ligotti story. Um, typically yearned for <laughs> um but uh oftentimes even worse it potentially than reality and that death is not always the end a lot of his stories present kind of closed loops um but it 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 captures uh that kind of horror of uh, of being uh, that that feeling of of uh, that where the wires get crossed, where we do, even though we're not programmed to do it, we do force ourselves to think about, or because our brain is damaged in some way, can't stop thinking about the fact that we're only here for a little while. You touch on that a little bit in um in your collection, uh, the secret of ventriloquism, and that that very first piece, uh, the mind. I think it's the mindfulness of horror practice, where you right. you explore sort of like the material of the body and how this in, inanimate object essentially is almost like the my, my what I get out of it. It's almost like it's more humane for there not to be any consciousness inside the material, <laughs> and for there to be more of a external force propelling this material forward through time exactly you know in writing uh that book a lot of the stories which are of course interconnected to one degree or another um kind of revolve around this idea of salvation through horror uh so uh you know in a lot of the stories there the suffering comes from consciousness. It comes from the identity of the characters. Um, and when that is stripped away, um, uh, there, is a, there is a relief and a release. Um, and, uh, and, and, that, and that ties into kind of the paradoxical quality of all of this, you know? And, and the thing that drew me to Ligotti in the first place was even reading his stories, I, I had this, from the very beginning, this, this intimate feeling of, of uh, understanding, and, and which was different than anything that I've ever experienced before or since, because it's, it's on such a, on such a deep level uh, um, that, it is so basic inside of us, you know, this, uh, I, I think, and I, and I think a lot of people who really dig Ligotti's work feel the same, um, that like, they, there's something 
that we might have always wanted to express <laughs> um, and and recognize when we read a great Ligotti story. Um, so paradoxically, this like completely grim vision of of the world and existence um, has a humane quality about it. It's it's something it's something it's hard to put put your finger on it. But I, I've heard this time and again, and I used to think I was the only one who uh, who felt this way about Ligotti's work. And over the over the decades, really, um, I've I've talked to more and more uh, Ligotti readers who feel the same way I did. And uh, and I guess my collection is kind of my take on on all of that. Um, which is from a, a slightly different angle uh, than than Ligotti's work, although there's plenty of overlap. Yeah, yeah I mean, philosophically, for sure there is, you know, I mean, but there's, you know, like um, Infusorium is, you know, sort of a police procedural, you know, with this sort of, right. you know, which I, I enjoy a lot of stuff too, you know, and um, yeah, all, all, the, all the stories are very different, but there is like that sort of overarching uh, element to it. And, uh, but actually speaking about just like, you know, pessimism and, you know, the nihilistic quality of understanding that we live in like a, you know, nothing, there's nothingness basically. <laughs> and um, the first, the first Ligotti piece I read was a conspiracy against a human race was like, you know, I, I picked it up because the title sounded very ominous and, you know, it sounded like really metal, you know, and I was like, oh, this is like something yeah. right up my alley. And it wasn't any of the fiction. So I, I'd read that first and I thought the cover looked really cool too. Um, yeah. you know, and I, I'd had, I had, re I'd read some Arthur Schopenhauer, you know, over the years. And, um, that was like a heavy influence on his philosophy. It seems like that sort of, you know, pessimistic point of view. Now it seems like there's sure. two camps of people. There's like the ones who get really depressed about there being nothing. <laughs> and there are those <laughs> who feel somewhat liberated by the fact that there is uh you know we kind of make our own fortune in the world in in this reality because ultimately everything goes to zero you know or or nothingness right. you know so that that's like that's like the sense i get throughout some of the writing in in um you know secret of ventriloquism and you know that's like i guess like what i'm assuming to be your your overarching sort of philosophy that you apply to the work that you're doing yeah, well, that's the that's the the funny thing, you know. Uh, I although there have been times in my life that I have certainly, I mean, I like like so many uh, uh, readers and, and and authors and weird fiction and, and visual artists as well have struggled with uh, depression and. Um, with um, anxiety, panic attacks, uh, all, all that good stuff. <laughs> and uh, anybody who has struggled, say, with major depression knows that when they are in the throes of it, the only thing that makes sense oftentimes is the, the very blackest worldview. And, and paradoxically, it's one of the only things that can be of comfort during those times. Um, I mean, it's the, you know, <laughs> it, it's the same reason why people listen to such like uh, bleak and, and uh, uh, morbid uh, music. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not that you, you know, if if you if you listen to like an old Sabbath album, uh, for instance, I mean, you know, if if you're of the the right kind of of uh, personality, you're pr probably going to leave the end by the end. You're going to be smiling, <laughs> you know. Uh, it 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 makes you feel better. And, uh, um, and and I think it's it, it's much the same way 
with me. I I cannot say that I subscribe to Tom's philosophy of the universe. Um, uh, you know, I I, um, I certainly have at times felt that, <laughs> and I'm sure that in the future I will again. But it's uh, Tom has a way of you know he's been deep down in the at the bottom of the pool for a very long time um and uh both both because of his his psychological issues and because of his uh, situational issues um but he'll be the first one to tell you too that that he has his good days as well and and his victories uh, he's got an ego as well, uh, just like all of us do. And he knows full well that any kind of creation, even writing the conspiracy against the human race, is in its own way life-affirming. Um, so that's, that's where we get into the paradox again, you know. Uh, I, I wrote uh, The Secret of Ventriloquism, Partially because I wanted to, well, originally it was because I wanted to write one good story. Um, and it kind of blossomed out from that. But by the end of, of writing it, I realized that I was trying to answer a fairly simple question, much like the question you asked at the very beginning of the interview, what is it that makes these anthropomorphic figures scary? Why, why, why was I so scared of them, you know, from the very beginning when I saw a night gallery episode called the doll um, and was, <laughs> and was, uh, you know, and had uh, recurring nightmares about her for the next five years. Um, what what was it about ventriloquist dummies that 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 so enraptured me and, and terrified me at the same time when I was when I was nine? Um, so much so that I begged my parents to get me a ventriloquist dummy. Um, you know, that book is, I guess, my my attempt at a artistic answer to that question. Um, and it's and it's one that has uh, that, that's really influenced my life as an adult. Because after I read that that collection, I went back and reread uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which um you know the the novel is actually to me i consider that a weird tale obviously you know there's like you know it's existential or sort of uh you know horror yeah i mean you have some guy who assembles all this material right and somehow life erupts from that you know and then the monster frankenstein's monster questions as to what you know what, what am i here for what am i doing who are you? Yeah. You know, you're my father. And <laughs> and it's funny. I, I read the 1818 uh, text of that uh, when after I'd finished reading this and I was just like, oh, yeah, this is like the question as to like, why are we here? And like mm -hmm. the material and the consciousness connection is like one of the key things that I got out of the secret of ventriloquism. And then also a lot of the other, you know, Ligotti's uh, stories that refer to marionettes and inanimate objects and things like that. That's great. That's a, that's a really that's a a really perceptive observation. Um, you know the the creature. Uh, reverse engineered <laughs> puppet. You know made out, made out of dead human materials, um, but still nonetheless an uncanny object. So uncanny that after Frankenstein uh, creates it, 
he's so horrified <laughs> at, at at what he's done that he you know despises the creature just utterly um yeah that's a fascinating observation so with weird fiction in general like how everyone has a story of what their entry point was into like that subgenre because not not everyone finds himself not every horror fan you know goes from yeah, you might just be into Stephen King, who's a great writer, who I think is going to be enter the American canon of writers, in my opinion, even though he's a genre fiction writer. But that very specific sort of uh, niche of the you know collection of people that we we saw at Nightlands, you know, very specific sort of um, interests. So, what was your entry point into into all of this? Was it Lovecraft or you know Arthur Mackin or something like that? You know, I, I I used to I used to answer this by saying, you know, when I was about eight years old, I I got uh, a hold of a copy of um, uh, of Poe's work, um, Tales of Mystery in the, in the Imagination, and that is true. But well before that, um, you know, I can remember well. You know the 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 story in the collection Murmurs of a Voice Foreknown, the one about the two brothers. Yes. Well, that was very very close to being nonfiction. <laughs> um, I I had a brother, uh, an older brother. I have an older brother. <laughs> I, I did not actually kill him, um, but uh, I, he used to uh, uh, try to scare me every day. Uh, and each night would tell me stories that he made up about uh, things that he knew that I was scared of, like the doll um, or the hand that lived under the bed, all sorts of, uh, of, of things, anything that he could do um, uh, to try to torment me. Um, and, that had, and that had a big effect on, on me, obviously. Uh, but, you know, from the time that that I can remember, even as a very little kid, I, I had kind of a a warped sense of um, of um, the world. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can I can remember, you know, I used to have night terrors when I was when I was a toddler and and a young kid, and uh, I still remember the. Um, the first nightmare that I ever had was um, I was deathly afraid of car washes. Car washes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, in the nightmare that I had, um, doctors or doctor figures were uh, pushing two gurneys into either side of uh, a car wash. I was strapped into one side and my mom was strapped into the other side. And, uh, you know, in the nightmare, some kind of shifted to third person. Uh, so you see the car wash running and, uh, um, and at the end of the nightmare, a monster very much like Frankenstein's monster comes out and it's like, part me and part my mother. And I remember, I remember the feeling of losing my identity in this monstrous form. And I, I woke up screaming with my mom hovered above me, um, you know, checking on me because I was having, <laughs> I was having a terrible nightmare. And uh, uh, I screamed and I, I ran into uh, the, the living room, jumped on my dad's lap and, and started screaming, don't let her put me together over and over again. And, uh, and of course that is a phrase that I've never forgotten and one that I use repeatedly in, uh, in the stories in that book. 
the, the, the fear element of this type of fiction, though, is a little bit less uh, tangible in some ways. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's um, you know, in, in a lot of this type of fiction, there, I mean, I, well, okay, in, in Lovecraft stuff, you know, you have Shoggoths and creatures, things like that. But his more, um, you know, the more, it, my favorite of his material is the stuff that has to do more with like madness and like the loss of control and that sort of thing. And then, right. As, the more modern writers, you know, there's almost, it's almost like nothing happens. Like for example, uh, the frolic, you know, uh, um, Thomas Ligotti, <laughs> there's yeah. no, you don't even really meet the guy who is supposed to be this horrible person. He's this idea, yep. like kind of exists out there as this menacing figure that might be lurking in the shadows just outside your their window. So it's really yeah. just this overarching dread and almost unresolved in some ways. So it's almost like the buildup without any resolution, which I think makes some of the best weird tales. Mm-hmm. It does. Paradoxically, that's true. And you know, it's funny about the frolic. Um, one of the reasons why that story was such a perfect um, gateway to begin uh, the collection Songs of a Dead Dreamer which was Ligotti's first uh, uh, full-length collection, um, was because that, the, that is one of the few Ligotti stories in which the characters are, other than the bad guy, uh, John Doe, are completely normal people. They're, they are middle America, upper middle America, Um, but he was, Tom was trying to write a story that would be more like a Stephen King story, more conventional, more like, uh, you know, accessible. Um, but even in that story, you're right. It's, it's, it's a, it's essentially one scene, uh, between uh, a husband and wife talking about, the work day um and 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 of course becomes uh something very different um but uh yeah no you're 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 right and there uh, there are quote-unquote creatures in a handful of Ligotti stories um but it's true that most of the most of the horrors um become psychological or, or or more surreal they're harder to pin down um they're harder to define um and that is very much intentional i would love to see the frolic uh presented as a you know produced as like a play or something like that just with like you know two actors you know there something. is a there is a short film version really um i think that you get i think that you can get it on amazon prime oh okay yeah 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 so check it out. <laughs> so as far as uh, publishing and, uh, you know, Grimscribe Press, like when did all that start for you? Like how, what was your, you know, did you have a background in publishing before uh, getting involved in that? No, um, my, my only credentials that, that might apply uh, formally, um, I, I got an MFA in English or not an MFA. I don't know what I'm talking about. I got a master of arts in English literature. Um, and uh, when, from the time that I first started reading Ligotti though, it did two things. One is it made me want to, to write. And really I had always, I had always wanted to write and was kind of wishy-washy about it. Uh, you know, I, I've got a theater background. Um, and so uh, most of my education before grad school was was based around that. I've got a BA in theater arts and, and was in plays all the time from the time that I was seven to, you know, till I was 21. Um, and, and periodically after that. But Reading Ligotti's work made me really want to write. Um, and I didn't know how to write. Um, it also made me want to uh, 
publish books. I started, I started fantasizing even in the early nineties of like, um, uh, for, for the longest time, I thought, boy, it would be great to, to, um, put together a big book called Psalms of the Silent by Thomas Ligotti. And it would have all, all of the stories that I love, um, in, in just the right order. And, uh, and I remember talking to Tom about that uh, when uh, I was in my my mid to late twenties. Uh, I was living in New York City at the time, and uh, I was talking to him on the phone and and, and mentioned that, and and, uh, and he said, "Well, you know, uh, to put together a book like that, I mean, that would cost a good bit of money, even if it was a limited run." And I, I asked him at the time, "I well, how much money?" do you think something like that would cost? And it was like, it, it, it would probably cost around $10,000 to, you know, uh, and of course this was before POD or, you know, uh, uh, small press publishing became possible. But I always had that in my mind that I wanted to publish work like Ligotti's um, and that were in, if not like Ligotti's that were somehow in conversation with some of the things that he was interested in, um, in his work. And uh, I guess back in 2015 on Thomas Ligotti Online, which is the website that I created back in the nineties, um, somebody mentioned uh, on a thread that they would love to see a journal that had Ligotti in material. And uh, it became a conversation with a number of us. And uh, about five of us came together, um, including me and Matt Carden and a number of others uh, who eventually dropped out of the project. And uh, we put together um, the bylaws for what would become Vastarium, a literary journal. And uh, and at that time, a few years before, Tom had uh, written to me and said, hey, I want you to be my literary executor. Um, so if something happens to me, all the rights to all of my stories that have been written or all of my prose, all of my poetry will belong to you. Will you do this? And I said, yes. So that's when I first started thinking small press, like Necronomicon Press in the 90s or something like that, except, or, or Arkham House uh, for Lovecraft. And, uh, and so that had been in my mind. So as Vasterian got off the ground, I started getting more and more um, experienced publishing uh putting putting these issues together and that moved into publishing collections started with um a novella back in 2019 by um nicole cushing called the half freaks and then that moved into uh, a collection by christopher slatsky um the immeasurable corpse of nature. And after that, it moved on to other work by Gemma Files, Kurt Favre, a handful of others, Michael Sisko. Um, and uh, just, I, I've, I've been very, very careful to not overdo. <laughs> a, a lot of small presses end up getting some success or winning some awards and then they just, you know, go nuts and say, you know, this is it. This is all I'm going to do. I'm going to publish, you know, instead of publishing three books this year, I'm going to publish 10 books. And then, you know, they, they bite off more than they can chew. And, and unfortunate things tend to happen. <laughs> yeah. um, so I tried to avoid that. Um, and all of this is leading up to the day if it comes if i outlive tom where you know i'm going to be able to curate his work um, and i'm going to know how 
how, how do you even meet a guy like Thomas Ligotti? Because he, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that, you know, you, um, <laughs> you, know, you, pick up, you know, you email him or, you know, or something like that, or you, you hit him on, uh, you know, instant messenger or something. You know what I'm trying to say? He seems like a. Yeah. 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 No, it, you, you know, and, well, and this is, this is the weird thing. I always, I always thought the same thing. Uh, you know, I, when the first, the first four or five years that I read Ligotti's work, I thought, this guy has to be like completely antisocial, um, you know. And I was right that he that he is agoraphobic. I mean, that's that's real. He gets nervous going to the grocery store. Um, but um, what I didn't realize is that he's also <laughs> this is weird to say, but he's a people person. He always has been. He's outgoing. He's he even, you know, he told me uh, when we first started talking that uh, one time that, uh, you know, he was the kid who went to all the other kids on the street and got them out of the house and said, get your ass out here. Let's play street hockey. Um, so very much not what I was expecting. Not like not like I was when I was a kid which was not athletic or, you know, gregarious at all, but very much uh, the opposite of that. Um, but uh, the way I came into direct contact with him um, was in, I think it was late 1997. I was in New York City. I was working in the law library. I had a job that did not pay well that gave me a lot of time to fart around and uh uh i i guessed um Ligotti's email address and yes. at this point i guessed it um because i found out where he worked from i think the nightmare factory mentioned that he worked at the gale group so i started digging around and found some other people who had who gave their work emails and I just used the their convention and uh and wrote to Tom by that point for several years I had been on Usenet like preaching the gospel of Ligotti you know going on alt horror Cthulhu and and saying there needs to be uh you know and alt horror Thomas Ligotti. And, uh, you know, I was the only one who thought that was a good idea, but I wrote a lot of messages about that. And eventually I did get a Usenet group created, uh, alt books, Thomas Ligotti. And that's where I met Matt Carden. Um, and uh, shortly after that, I created Thomas Ligotti online. And shortly after that, I guessed Tom's email address and sent an email to him. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm never going to hear from him. Uh, like in an hour, he writes me back and says, you know, uh, I'd be an asshole if I didn't write you back, you know. Uh, plus, I've been watching online you, you know, like trying to, to get my work read more widely. And thank you. And in uh, creating this website, um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, that's how it started. And, uh, you know, we, for long periods of time, for years since then, we've, we've uh, emailed each other almost every day and uh, um, always keep in touch at least once a week. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it, it's, been, it's been bizarre, you know, and, and great. You know, Tom is an, an incredibly warm and generous person. Um, and, uh, uh, and yeah, and that's I, the, the thing about my friendship with him that I've kind of learned that uh, um, he's very misunderstood, you know, because most people, a lot of people get, get mixed up. They think, okay, he hates um, uh, 
organic life. He hates, you know, being alive. Okay, granted. Um, and he thinks that organic life was a mistake. Yes. So that must mean that he hates people. That's absolutely incorrect. <laughs> he has a great love of people. Like I said, he's a people person. And uh, he's much more of a people person than, say, I am, um, or, or a lot of people that I know. Uh, he, and, and once you know that, though, then when you read something like The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, you see, oh, the reason why he's so upset about this is not because he's just thinking about himself. It's because he's thinking about the plight of, of all of the people that he's ever known or will ever know and people that he loves and you know that it just seems like a completely uh i mean he would like he he literally would like you know everybody to uh have a pain-free existence for the rest of their lives that would be his dream world um so yeah that's uh, interesting. So it really was just a matter of you uh, emailing them. <laughs> this, like, as I was saying at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, it was. Wow. And also, you know, that's an interesting uh, sort of thing, too, is that a lot of people who appreciate the work, you know, these kind of dark artists, you know, like they misunderstand that that the piece or the the art that they're, you know, check, listening to or reading or looking at is only just like an expression of an idea. It's not necessarily, uh, doesn't capture necessarily the, the entirety of that person, you know? So yeah, that's interesting. You bring that up about Ligotti for sure. Now, as far as uh, narration goes, because, uh, you know, at Nightlands and also at, uh, you know, the Cadabra Records uh, catalog, um, you narrate very well, quite a bit of the material. So how did you get into that? Was it your, you know, your sort of background in theater and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I would say so, you know, that acting has always been something that I've done better than I do anything else that I do. And I still think that that's true. Um, I, you know, at the same time that I was having all of these doll nightmares etc i mean i was just the biggest ham and the you know on the block um and, and uh and, and always was drawn to to performing um in front of an audience um uh, and, and again that's that's kind of where my uh it, most of my education lay as well um so when I first became aware of, of Tom's work and started reading it, the first thing that I started doing was, you know, telling friends, you got to, you got to hear the story. And somehow through some form of coercion, uh, forced them to sit down for, you know, 30, 45 minutes and, and listen to me read it to them um and after some time passed i got out of undergrad and and uh uh was preparing for um graduate school i started i got a uh a, a four track recorder um and i and a cheap radio shack microphone and started recording myself uh reading legati stories and uh, so by the time I actually got in contact with Tom uh, and we started talking on the phone, I told him about this. And he was like, well, um, why don't you send me a t uh, one of the tapes? So I started sending tapes to him and, uh, and he would respond to the tapes. Some, some of the stories he liked, some of the stories he didn't like, but... Uh, he was always encouraging about what he heard. And in, in, one, in at least one case, uh, a story that I read, the Salal, you know, beforehand, you know, he told me, you know, I, I, I listened to that story 
to work and on the way back from work. And I, I, I realized, you know, I always thought that that was a failure, but I realized listening to it, that it actually isn't a failure. So thank you. <laughs> um, and, and, and that to me was very encouraging. And as time went on, uh, you know, YouTube became a thing and, and uh, even before YouTube actually, uh, Thomas Ligotti Online uh, as a bulletin board system of sorts um, had a uh, um, had a little player in which you could upload um, MP3s. Um, so I started, I recorded a handful of, of work and uploaded it there, including the bungalow house. So fast forward to, you know, 2016 and 2017, 2018. And, um, uh, and long story short, Denison contacted Ligotti, asked Ligotti if he knew anybody who uh, would know, who would be good to narrate. Um, he directed uh, Jonathan to me. Um, I pitched myself. Uh, he's, he listened to the work and said, okay. Uh, I uh, recorded the bungalow house in a studio. He heard it and thought, um, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and he, he wrote me an email saying, I'm sorry. You know, and by this point we had, we had, you know, we had a contract. He had already sent me the money and everything. And he was like, I'm sorry, we're, this isn't what I want. And, uh, I, I got on the phone with him and said, Hey, you know, it, he wanted a more performative, uh, um, version and uh and i had really like pulled back um uh i i i i was not performative enough um but i told him you know i can do this and uh and i did it and uh you know uh he gave me a second chance which i'm eternally grateful <laughs> wow uh, so that's that, that's that that's how it happened. And, you know, eventually, about a year ago, um, uh, I caught wind that Penguin Classics was doing an audio version of Songs of a Dead Dreamer and Grimscribe. Um, and uh, I started, I got on all my social media platforms and I started saying, you know, I, this is coming and I really want to do it if you like, you know me as an narrator, then please, you know, uh, let them know. And one of, uh, one of the, the people that I knew, uh, that I know actually an author, who I know online, uh, created, a a, a change.org, um, which got several hundred people signed on and, and, uh, I successfully, made contact with the penguin people and and uh they let me do it <laughs> awesome yeah, i wasn't yeah. aware like, i wasn't aware about the I, i'm not a big audio book listener you know but uh so yeah yeah i wasn't aware of that version of it out there that's interesting now yeah. after um after going to nightlands festival for the entire weekend um one of the things that uh i, I kind of marveled at actually was I know that I'm, I'm familiar with the recording process and, you know, you get takes to do things over and over again. You can hit certain lines again and get comped in and, you know, now doing a long piece in front of people with a musical accompaniment to me seems like when everyone can hear you clearly, they can hear every word you say. Okay. What type of rehearsal did you have to do to get to that point? I mean, in all honesty, very little. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, we. it's not like, I think the first time, well, no, no, not the first time. But, so in 2019, uh, we did a live show, Chris, Barry, and I um, uh, did the first live cadaver show in Philly. And um, 
I think we did a run through the day of earlier in the day. Um, and then uh, the next year, or no, in 2021, there was a, uh, no, no, I take that back. It, it must have been, 20, no, it was, it was 2021. Um, we did uh, an Orlando show uh, with, and, and for that one, we, we tried to rehearse virtually over Zoom because, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic and, right. and uh, that, that didn't really work out um, very well. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, every other time, and then we did it again in Philly, we, uh, you know, we did sound checks. So we would do like maybe five minutes, the first five minutes of, of each piece um, just for levels. But uh, no, uh, other than that, it was, it was uh, um, no, no rehearsal. That blows my mind completely because uh, I, I am blown away by that. Uh, I mean, I, I perform music and I, I sing and I'm constantly forgetting lyrics and, uh, you know, blowing lines and things like that. And, you know, the, the only thing that has to be right is the words, you know, in these types of performances. <laughs> And I remember like, well, the words and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the flow and the intention behind the words and all that's the emotion expression, that sort of thing. Uh, Cause I, I remember sitting there and watching all you guys perform. And I was just like, man, like, I can't even imagine, you know, if someone who's not necessarily familiar with the process of doing something like this might sit back and be like, oh, there's a bunch of guys reading stuff. It's some music, you know, but like the thing that I was really impressed by was how well everyone was, was able to, deliver like these performances with emotion and for the most part everyone hit all the you know they got all the words right and everything i just thought that was like is incredible really you know yeah it's a uh, you know it it it's every one of these has been an amazing experience and none more so than nightlands i mean to see these these guys <laughs> perform uh was was amazing to me as well and um uh and chris bazone is just such a genius i mean that's the only thing i, I mean he and barry uh, they i mean for for the whole time i mean all two two days in a row all day long they they pretty much played you know yeah, chris I mean, was on the, chris was on stage basically the whole time <laughs> you know yeah, really he yeah had a couple of uh you know breaks but that was it really yeah and and you know reading i've i've always loved reading tom's work but when I'm reading it and Chris is playing at the same time, it's like, it's a different level. <laughs> I mean, you know, I can recall at the Nightlands Festival, um, it was interesting because I developed a splitting headache while I was on stage. I think I had, I had had a little too much whiskey the night before. And, uh, um, and, uh, we were we were doing um, Mrs. Rinaldi's Angel, and about halfway through, the the pain of the headache had reached a level to where I was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep doing this. But the amazing thing is that um, it was it was the best that I'd ever done, and. I realized the reason why is is that the pain of the headache had completely turned off uh, my critical mind. Um, so I wasn't evaluating things like, you know, did, am, am, I, am I really reading this right? Or uh, did I screw this up? Or, you know, 
what was that audience reaction? Was that good, bad? The, the things that just normally go through a performer's head, um, even when they're pretty far down in it, that was all turned off. Um, and it was just, it was just me, the audience, and uh, Chris and Barry. And uh, it, it felt like I was levitating. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Um, that whole set, just astounding. Yeah, they, have, they have another event coming up in October, uh, October 1st, which I'm going to, I can't make I the first date, but I'm going to the second date. I'll be there on the Sunday. Um, it's at the studio that Chris does uh, some of his work at. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. And that that's where we, um, I think it was, uh, not this past summer, but the summer before last, we we uh, did a a set there. Um, it's a great it's a great little space. Um, it's it's actually it, it is a studio, but it's it's also a stage. Um, so it, it's a nice. Um, the acoustics are just amazing there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So, John, thank you very much for your time much appreciated oh uh, yeah 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 Thank this you. was great it was great chatting and uh you know at some point in the future hope to see you again yeah absolutely thanks so much mike and uh um yeah i i, I i'm pretty positive that <laughs> nightlands is going to uh happen again and if you um if you can make it to necronomicon uh next summer oh, that would be go, great yeah. Um, I'll be there. It's, it's all. Uh, oh well, I'll probably be there too. So I'll yeah, we'll stay that. in touch about that for sure. Definitely, those. That's always great yeah. in Necronomicon. All right, all John. Right. Once again, thank you, and uh, thanks for doing this, well, and have you. a pleasant evening. Take care now. All right, you too.